Chapter Fifty Two, Part Four, of the History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume Five. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christine. The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume Five. Chapter Fifty Two, Part Four. Under the reign of Almamon at Baghdad, of Michael the Stammerer at Constantinople, the islands of Crete and Sicily were subdued by the Arabs. The former of these conquests is disdained by their own writers, who were ignorant of the fame of Jupiter and Minos, but it has not been overlooked by the Byzantine historians, who now begin to cast a clear light on the affairs of their own times. A band of Andalusian volunteers, discontented with the climate or government of Spain, explored their adventures by sea, but as they sailed in no more than ten or twenty galleys, their warfare must be branded with the name of piracy. As the subjects and sectaries of the white party, they might lawfully invade the dominions of the black caliphs. A rebellious faction introduced them into Alexandria. They cut in pieces both friends and foes, pillaged the churches and the mosques, sold about six thousand Christian captives, and maintained their station in the capital of Egypt, till they were oppressed by the forces and the presence of Almamon himself. From the mouth of the Nile to the Hellespont, the islands and sea-coasts, both of the Greeks and Moslems, were exposed to their depredations. They saw, they invited, they tasted the fertility of Crete, and soon returned with forty galleys to a more serious attack. The Andalusians wandered over the land, fearless and unmolested. But when they descended with their plunder to the seashore, their vessels were in flames, and their chief, Abu Kaab, confessed himself the author of the mischief. Their clamors accused his madness or treachery. Of what do you complain? replied the crafty emir. I have brought you to a land flowing with milk and honey. Here is your true country, repose from your toils, and forget the barren place of your nativity. And our wives and children? Your beauteous captives will supply the place of your wives, and in their embraces you will soon become the fathers of a new progeny. The first habitation was their camp, with a ditch and rampart in the bay of Suda, but an apostate monk led them to a more desirable position in the eastern parts, and the name of Kandax, their fortress and colony, has been extended to the whole island, under the corrupt and modern appellation of Candia. The hundred cities of the age of Minos were diminished to thirty, and of these only one, most probably Chidonia, had courage to retain the substance of freedom and the profession of Christianity. The Saracens of Crete soon repaired the loss of their navy, and the timbers of Mount Ida were launched into the main. During a hostile period of 138 years, the princes of Constantinople attacked these licentious corsairs with fruitless curses and ineffectual arms. The loss of Sicily was occasioned by an act of superstitious rigor. An amorous youth, who had stolen a nun from her cloister, was sentenced by the emperor to the amputation of his tongue. 
Euphemius appealed to the reason and policy of the Saracens of Africa, and soon returned with the imperial purple, a fleet of one hundred ships, and an army of seven hundred horse and ten thousand foot. They landed at Mazara, near the ruins of the ancient Selenus. But after some partial victories, Syracuse was delivered by the Greeks. The apostate was slain before her walls, and his African friends were reduced to the necessity of feeding on the flesh of their own horses. In their turn they were relieved by a powerful reinforcement of their brethren of Andalusia. The largest and western part of the island was gradually reduced, and the commodious harbor of Palermo was chosen for the seat of the naval and military power of the Saracens. Syracuse preserved about fifty years the faith which she had sworn to Christ and to Caesar. In the last and fatal siege, her citizens displayed some remnant of the spirit which had formerly resisted the powers of Athens and Carthage. They stood about twenty days against the battering rams and catapult, the mines and tortoises of the besiegers. And the place might have been relieved if the mariners of the imperial fleet had not been detained at Constantinople in building a church to the Virgin Mary. The deacon Theodosius, with the bishop and clergy, was dragged in chains from the altar to Palermo, cast into a subterraneous dungeon, and exposed to the hourly peril of death or apostasy. His pathetic and not inelegant complaint might be read as the epitaph of his country. From the Roman conquest to this final calamity, Syracuse, now dwindled to the primitive isle of Ortigia, had insensibly declined. Yet the relics were still precious. The plate of the cathedral weighed five thousand pounds of silver. The entire spoil was computed at one million of pieces of gold, about four hundred thousand pounds sterling. And the captives must outnumber the seventeen thousand Christians, who were transported from the sack of Tauromenium into African servitude. In Sicily, the religion and language of the Greeks were eradicated, and such was the docility of the rising generation that fifteen thousand boys were circumcised and clothed on the same day with the son of the Fatimite caliph. The Arabian squadrons issued from the harbors of Palermo, Biserta, and Tunis. A hundred and fifty towns of Calabria and Campania were attacked and pillaged, nor could the suburbs of Rome be defended by the name of the Caesars and Apostles. Had the Mohammedans been united, Italy must have fallen an easy and glorious accession to the empire of the Prophet, but the caliphs of Baghdad had lost their authority in the west. The Aglabites and Fatimites usurped the provinces of Africa, their emirs of Sicily aspired to independence, and the design of conquest and dominion was degraded to a repetition of predatory inroads. In the sufferings of prostrate Italy, the name of Rome awakens a solemn and mournful recollection. A fleet of Saracens from the African coast presumed to enter the mouth of the Tiber, and to approach a city which even yet, in her fallen state, was revered as the metropolis of the Christian world. The gates and ramparts were guarded by a trembling people, but the tombs and temples of St. Peter and St. Paul were left exposed in the suburbs of the Vatican and of the Ostian Way. Their invisible sanctity had protected them against the Goths, the Vandals, and the Lombards, 
but the Arabs disdained both the gospel and the legend, and their rapacious spirit was approved and animated by the precepts of the Koran. The Christian idols were stripped of their costly offerings, a silver altar was torn away from the shrine of St. Peter, and if the bodies or the buildings were left entire, their deliverance must be imputed to the haste, rather than the scruples of the Saracens. In their course along the Appian Way, they pillaged Fundi and besieged Cayeta, but they had turned aside from the walls of Rome, and by their divisions the capital was saved from the yoke of the prophet of Mecca. The same danger still impended on the heads of the Roman people, and their domestic force was unequal to the assault of an African emir. They claimed the protection of their Latin sovereign, but the Carlovingian standard was overthrown by attachment of the barbarians. They meditated the restoration of the Greek emperors, but the attempt was treasonable, and the succor remote and precarious. Their distress appeared to receive some aggravation from the death of their spiritual and temporal chief, but the pressing emergency superseded the forms and intrigues of an election. And the unanimous choice of Pope Leo IV was the safety of the church and city. This pontiff was born a Roman, the courage of the first ages of the Republic glowed in his breast, and, amidst the ruins of his country, he stood erect, like one of the firm and lofty columns that rear their heads above the fragments of the Roman Forum. The first days of his reign were consecrated to the purification and removal of relics, to prayers and processions, and to all the solemn offices of religion, which served at least to heal the imagination and restore the hopes of the multitude. The public defense had been long neglected, not from the presumption of peace, but from the distress and poverty of the times. As far as the scantiness of his means and the shortness of his leisure would allow, the ancient walls were repaired by the command of Leo. Fifteen towers in the most accessible stations were built or renewed. Two of these commanded on either side of the Tiber, and an iron chain was drawn across the stream to impede the ascent of a hostile navy. The Romans were assured of a short respite by the welcome news that the siege of Cayeta had been raised, and that a part of the enemy with their sacrilegious plunder had perished in the waves. But the storm, which had been delayed, soon burst upon them with redoubled violence. The Aglabite, who reigned in Africa, had inherited from his father a treasure and an army, a fleet of Arabs and Moors, after a short refreshment in the harbors of Sardinia, cast anchor before the mouth of the Tiber, sixteen miles from the city, and their discipline and numbers appeared to threaten, not a transient inroad, but a serious design of conquest and dominion. But the vigilance of Leo had formed an alliance with the vassals of the Greek Empire, the free and maritime states of Gaeta, Naples, and Amalfi, and in the hour of danger their galleys appeared in the port of Ostia, under the command of Caesarius, the son of the Neapolitan duke, a noble and valiant youth, who had already vanquished the fleets of the Saracens. With his principal companions, Caesarius was invited to the Lateran palace, and the dexterous pontiff affected to inquire their errand, and to accept with joy and surprise their providential succor.
the city bands in arms attended their father to Ostia, where he reviewed and blessed his generous deliverers. They kissed his feet, received the communion with martial devotion, and listened to the prayer of Leo, that the same God who had supported St. Peter and St. Paul on the waves of the sea would strengthen the hands of his champions against the adversaries of his holy name. After a similar prayer, and with equal resolution, the Muslims advanced to the attack of the Christian galleys, which preserved their advantageous station along the coast. The victory inclined to the side of the allies, when it was less gloriously decided in their favor by a sudden tempest, which confounded the skill and courage of the stoutest mariners. The Christians were sheltered in a friendly harbor, while the Africans were scattered and dashed in pieces among the rocks and islands of a hostile shore. Those who escaped from shipwreck and hunger neither found nor deserved mercy at the hands of their implacable pursuers. The sword and the gibbet reduced the dangerous multitude of captives, and the remainder was more usefully employed to restore the sacred edifices which they had attempted to subvert. The pontiff, at the head of the citizens and allies, paid his grateful devotion at the shrines of the apostles, and, among the spoils of this naval victory, thirteen Arabian bows of pure and massy silver were suspended round the altar of the fishermen of Galilee. The reign of Leo IV was employed in the defense and ornament of the Roman state. The churches were renewed and embellished. Near four thousand pounds of silver were consecrated to repair the losses of St. Peter, and his sanctuary was decorated with a plate of gold of the weight of two hundred and sixteen pounds, embossed with the portraits of the Pope and Emperor, and encircled with a string of pearls. Yet this vain magnificence reflects less glory on the character of Leo than the paternal care with which he rebuilt the walls of Horta and Ameria, and transported the wandering inhabitants of Centum Cali to his new foundation of Leopolis, twelve miles from the seashore. By his liberality, a colony of Corsicans, with their wives and children, was planted in the station of Porto, at the mouth of the Tiber. The falling city was restored for their use. The fields and vineyards were divided among the new settlers. Their first efforts were assisted by a gift of horses and cattle, and the hardy exiles, who breathed revenge against the Saracens, swore to live and die under the standard of St. Peter. The nations of the West and North who visited the threshold of the Apostles had gradually formed the large and populous suburb of the Vatican, and their various habitations were distinguished, in the language of the times, as the schools of the Greeks and Goths, of the Lombards and Saxons. But this venerable spot was still open to sacrilegious insult. The design of enclosing it with walls and towers exhausted all that authority could command, or charity would supply. And the pious labor of four years was animated in every season and at every hour by the presence of the indefatigable pontiff. The love of fame, a generous but worldly passion, may be detected in the name of the Leonine city, which he bestowed on the Vatican. Yet the pride of the dedication was tempered with Christian penance and humility. The boundary was trod by the bishop and his clergy, barefoot, in sackcloth and ashes, 
the songs of triumph were modulated to psalms and litanies, the walls were besprinkled with holy water, and the ceremony was concluded with a prayer, that, under the guardian care of the apostles and the angelic host, both the old and the new Rome might ever be preserved pure, prosperous, and impregnable. The emperor Theophilus, son of Michael the Stammerer, was one of the most active and high-spirited princes who reigned at Constantinople during the Middle Age. In offensive or defensive war, he marched in person five times against the Saracens, formidable in his attack, esteemed by the enemy in his losses and defeats. In the last of those expeditions, he penetrated into Syria and besieged the obscure town of Sosopetra, the casual birthplace of the Caliph Motassem, whose father Harun was attended in peace or war by the most favored of his wives and concubines. The revolt of a Persian impostor employed at that moment the arms of the Saracen, and he could only intercede in favor of a place for which he felt and acknowledged some degree of filial affection. These solicitations determined the emperor to wound his pride in so sensible a part. Susopetra was leveled with the ground, the Syrian prisoners were marked or mutilated with ignominious cruelty, and a thousand female captives were forced away from the adjacent territory. Among these a matron of the house of Abbas invoked, in an agony of despair, the name of Motassem, and the insults of the Greeks engaged the honor of her kinsman to avenge his indignity, and to answer her appeal. Under the reign of the two elder brothers, the inheritance of the youngest had been confined to Anatolia, Armenia, Georgia, and Circassia. This frontier station had exercised his military talents, and among his accidental claims to the name of Octonary, the most meritorious are the eight battles which he gained or fought against the enemies of the Koran. In this personal quarrel, the troops of Iraq, Syria, and Egypt were recruited from the tribes of Arabia and the Turkish hordes. His cavalry might be numerous, though we should deduct some myriads from the hundred and thirty thousand horses of the royal stables, and the expense of the armament was computed at four million sterling, or one hundred thousand pounds of gold. From Tarsus, the place of assembly, the Saracens advanced in three divisions along the high road of Constantinople. Motassem himself commanded the center, and the vanguard was given to his son Abbas, who, in the trial of the first adventures, might succeed with the more glory, or fail with the least reproach. In the revenge of his injury, the caliph prepared to retaliate a similar affront. The father of Theophilus was a native of Amorium in Phrygia. The original seat of the imperial house had been adorned with privileges and monuments, and, whatever might be the indifference of the people, Constantinople itself was scarcely of more value in the eyes of the sovereign and his court. The name of Amorium was inscribed on the shields of the Saracens, and their three armies were again united under the walls of the devoted city. It had been proposed by the wisest councillors to evacuate Amorium, to remove the inhabitants and to abandon the empty structures to the vain resentment of the barbarians. The emperor embraced the more generous resolution of defending, 
in a siege and battle, the country of his ancestors. When the armies drew near, the front of the Mahometan line appeared to a Roman eye, more closely planted with spears and javelins. But the event of the action was not glorious on either side, to the national troops. The Arabs were broken, but it was by the swords of thirty thousand Persians, who had obtained service and settlement in the Byzantine Empire. The Greeks were repulsed and vanquished, and it was by the arrows of the Turkish cavalry. And had not their bowstrings been damped and relaxed by the evening rain, very few of the Christian could have escaped with the emperor from the field of the battle. They breathed at Dolaim, at the distance of three days, and Theophilus, reviewing his trembling squadrons, forgave the common flight both of the prince and people. After this discovery of his weakness, he vainly hoped to deprecate the fate of Amorium. The inexorable caliph rejected with contempt his prayers and promises, and detained the Roman ambassadors to be the witnesses of his great revenge. They had nearly been the witnesses of his shame. The vigorous assaults of fifty-five days were encountered by a faithful governor, a veteran garrison, and a desperate people, and the Saracens must have raised the siege, if a domestic traitor had not pointed to the weakest part of the wall, a place which was decorated with the statues of a lion and a bull. The vow of Motosem was accomplished with unrelenting rigor. Tired, rather than satiated, with distraction, he returned to his new palace of Samara. In the neighborhood of Baghdad, while the unfortunate Theophilus implored the tardy and doubtful aid of his western rival, the Emperor of the Franks. Yet in the siege of Amorium, about seventy thousand Moslems had perished. Their loss had been revenged by the slaughter of thirty thousand Christians, and the sufferings of an equal number of captives, who were treated as the most atrocious criminals. Mutual necessity could sometimes extort the exchange or ransom of prisoners, but in the national and religious conflict of the two empires, peace was without confidence, and war without mercy. Quarter was seldom given in the field. Those who escaped the edge of the sword were condemned to hopeless servitude, or exquisite torture. And the Catholic emperor relates, with visible satisfaction, the execution of the Saracens of Crete, who were flayed alive or plunged into cauldrons of boiling oil. To a point of honor, Matassem had sacrificed a flourishing city, two hundred thousand lives, and the property of millions. The same caliph descended from his horse and dirtied his robe to relieve the distress of a decrepit old man who, with his laden ass, had tumbled into a ditch. On which of these actions did he reflect with the most pleasure when he was summoned by the angel of death? With Modassem, the eighth of the Abbasides, the glory of his family and nation expired. When the Arabian conquerors had spread themselves over the east and were mingled with the servile crowds of Persia, Syria, and Egypt, they incessantly lost the free-born and martial virtues of the desert. The courage of the south is the artificial fruit of discipline and prejudice. The active power of enthusiasm had decayed, and the mercenary forces of the caliphs were recruited in those climates of the north, of which valor is the hardy and spontaneous production. Of the Turks who dwelt beyond the Oxus and Jahartis, 
the robust youths, either taken in war or purchased in trade, were educated in the exercises of the field, and the profession of the Mahometan faith. The Turkish guards stood in arms round the throne of their benefactor, and their chiefs usurped the dominion of the palace and the provinces. Motassem, the first author of this dangerous example, introduced into the capital above fifty thousand Turks. Their licentious conduct provoked the public indignation, and the quarrels of the soldiers and people induced the caliph to retire from Baghdad, and establish his own residence and the camp of his barbarian favorites at Samara on the Tigris, about twelve leagues above the city of peace. His son Motavakal was a jealous and cruel tyrant. Odious to his subjects, he cast himself on the fidelity of the strangers, and these strangers, ambitious and apprehensive, were tempted by the rich promise of a revolution. At the instigation, or at least in the cause of his son, they burst into his apartment at the hour of supper, and the caliph was cut into seven pieces by the same swords which he had recently distributed among the guards of his life and throne. To this throne, yet streaming with the father's blood, Montasseur was triumphantly led, but in a reign of six months he found only the pangs of a guilty conscience. If he wept at the sight of an old tapestry which represented the crime and punishment of the son of Khosrows, if his days were abridged by grief and remorse, we may allow some pity to a parricide, who exclaimed, in the bitterness of death, that he had lost both this world and the world to come. After this act of treason, the ensigns of royalty, the garment and walking staff of Mahomet, were given and torn away by the foreign mercenaries, who, in four years, created, deposed, and murdered three commanders of the faithful, as often as the Turks were inflamed by fear or rage or avarice, these caliphs were dragged by the feet, exposed naked to the scorching sun, beaten with iron clubs, and compelled to purchase, by the abdication of their dignity, a short reprieve of inevitable fate. At length, however, the fury of the tempest was spent or diverted. The Abbasides returned to the less turbulent residence of Baghdad, the insolence of the Turks was curbed with a firmer and more skilful hand, and their numbers were divided and destroyed in foreign warfare. But the nations of the East had been taught to trample on the successors of the Prophet, and the blessings of domestic peace were obtained by the relaxation of strength and discipline. So uniform are the mischiefs of military despotism, that I seem to repeat the story of the Praetorians of Rome. While the flame of enthusiasm was damped by the business, the pleasure, and the knowledge of the age, it burned with consecrated heat in the breasts of the chosen few, the congenial spirits who were ambitious of reigning either in this world or in the next. How carefully, soever, the book of prophecy had been sealed by the apostle of Mecca, the wishes and, if he may profane the word, even the reason, of fanaticism, might believe that, after the successive missions of Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, Jesus, and Mahomet, the same God, in the fullness of time, would reveal a still more perfect and permanent law. In the 277th year of the Hegira, and in the neighborhood of Kaffa, an Arabian preacher, of the name of Karmas, 
assumed the lofty and incomprehensible style of the guide, the director, the demonstration, the word, the Holy Ghost, the camel, the herald of the Messiah, who conversed with him in a human shape, and the representative of Mohammed, the son of Ali, of St. John the Baptist, and of the angel Gabriel. In his mystic volume, The Percepts of the Koran, were refined to a more spiritual sense. He relaxed the duties of ablution, fasting, and pilgrimage, allowed the indiscriminate use of wine and forbidden food, and nourished the fervor of his disciples by the daily repetition of fifty prayers. The idleness and ferment of the rustic crowd awakened the attention of the magistrates of Kaffa. A timid persecution assisted the progress of the new sect, and the name of the prophet became more revered after his person had been withdrawn from the world. His twelve apostles dispersed themselves among the Bedouins, a race of men, says Abu Feda, equally devoid of reason and of religion. And the success of their preaching seemed to threaten Arabia with a new revolution. The Karamessians were ripe for rebellion, since they disclaimed the title of the House of Abbas, and abhorred the worldly pomp of the caliphs of Baghdad. They were susceptible of discipline, since they vowed a blind and absolute submission to their imam, who was called to the prophetic office by the voice of God and the people. Instead of the legal tithe, he claimed the fifth of their substance and spoil. The most flagitious sins were no more than the type of disobedience, and the brethren were united and concealed by an oath of secrecy. After a bloody conflict they prevailed in the province of Bahrain, along the Persian Gulf. Far and wide, the tribes of the desert were subject to the scepter, or rather to the sword of Abu Sayyid and his son Abu Taher. And these rebellious imams could muster in the field a hundred and seven thousand fanatics. The mercenaries of the caliph were dismayed at the approach of an enemy, who neither asked nor accepted quarter, and the difference between them in fortitude and patience is expressive of the change which three centuries of prosperity had effected in the character of the Arabians. Such troops were discomfited in every action. The cities of Raqqa and Baalbek, of Kaffa and Bassora, were taken and pillaged. Baghdad was filled with consternation, and the caliph trembled behind the veils of his palace. In a daring inroad beyond the Tigris, Abu Taher advanced to the gates of the capital with no more than five hundred horse. By the special order of Mokhtadeh, the bridges had been broken down, and the person or head of the rebel was expected every hour by the commander of the faithful. His lieutenant, from a motive of fear or pity, apprised Abu Taher of his danger, and recommended a speedy escape. "'Your master,' said the intrepid, Carmassian to the messenger, is at the head of thirty thousand soldiers. Three such men as these are wanting in his host. At the same instant, turning to three of his companions, he commanded the first to plunge a dagger into his breast, the second to leap into the tigris, and the third to cast himself headlong down a precipice. They obeyed without a murmur. Relate, continued the imam, what you have seen. Before the evening your general shall be chained among my dogs. Before the evening the camp was surprised and the menace was executed. 
The rapine of the Carmathians was sanctified by their aversion to the worship of Mecca. They robbed a caravan of pilgrims, and twenty thousand devout Moslems were abandoned on the burning sands to the death of hunger and thirst. Another year they suffered the pilgrims to proceed without interruption. But in the festival of devotion, Abu Taher stormed the holy city and trampled on the most venerable relics of the Mohammedan faith. Thirty thousand citizens and strangers were put to the sword. The sacred precincts were polluted by the burial of three thousand dead bodies. The well of Zamzam over flooded with blood. The golden spout was forced from its place. The veil of the Kaaba was divided among these impious sectaries, and the black stone, the first monument of the nation, was borne away in triumph to their capital. After this deed of sacrilege and cruelty, they continued to infest the confines of Iraq, Syria, and Egypt. But the vital principle of enthusiasm had withered at the root. Their scruples, or their avarice, again opened the pilgrimage of Mecca, and restored the black stone of the Kaaba, and it is needless to inquire into what factions they were broken, or by whose sword they were finally extirpated. The sect of the Carmathians may be considered as a second visible cause of the decline and fall of the empire of the caliphs. End of chapter 52, part 4